Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it seems like a really long time ago, but back in the mid-90s, I went to a Promise Keepers convention, and it was being held at a football stadium in Memphis. So there was about 50,000 men there, all learning and worshiping together, a very powerful thing. And then, then it was lunchtime. And I looked at the agenda, and they had a pretty narrow window for lunchtime. And I thought, how are you going to get 50,000 men their food in that kind of window? Well, the organizers had a plan. In the concourse, all the way around the stadium, there are tables every few sections. They were stacked high with box lunches. And the first table and then the, the tables behind had drinks. You came to those tables, you walk as fast as you wanted to. You were handed a lunch about the way you ha- be handed a football. You grabbed your drink, you walked out, you went back to your seat, you ate. They had the food in the hands of 50,000 men in 10 minutes. I mean, it was an impressive act of logistics. Now, in our story today, the disciples, I guess, I don't know how long they took, they had an impressive act of logistics. They got food out to 5,000 men and then whatever women and children went along, let's say 15,000 people. But this story isn't recorded because they were organized. This story is recorded because they didn't have 15,000 box lunches. They had one, one lunch, and that covered the whole lot of them. And I'm sure all of us would be much more wowed if we were there watching it. But let's think about this, that we might be appropriately wowed now. So it got to be lunchtime, probably dinner time, actually, and the disciples recognized the conundrum that they had. Send them out of here. You know, it wasn't like there was a Chipotle next door. I mean, they had to go a long way to go get food. These disciples are the same disciples who have seen other miracles. So it did not occur to them. I don't know why to say, you know, we need a miracle right now. They asked for just a logistic thing. Send them out of here. So Jesus, I don't know, I feel like he's kind of smiling on the inside. And he says to them, you give them something to eat. And now they're like, huh. All we got is this many loaves of bread and this, these amount of fishes. And Jesus knew all along the disciples just didn't anticipate it or even think of it as an answer because because people back then weren't stupid. They were just like us. They live in a world where there's laws of physics and you don't break those laws. I don't know that they knew that there was the law of the conservation of mass. I don't think they had a physics class, but they knew that you didn't normally make nothing uh, or something out of nothing. But Jesus does. 
So Jesus feeds all these people with one lunch. Now, it could have went very quietly, not causing an uproar, but the people saw it. And I don't know what it looked like as the food kept multiplying itself, but people saw it. And pretty soon the place, I'm sure, is a buzz. Jesus is creating food out of nothing. And this group of people were so impressed that Jesus couldn't shake them. And he tried, believe me. He, he, he tried even by his next miracle, which was walking across the water. That's hard for the crowd to do, but he walked halfway across the Sea of Galilee to try to get away. But the people, they kept following him. And later in the Gospel of John, Jesus confronts them about why they are following him. Now, he did want them actually to follow, but he wanted them to follow because they were looking for something specific. And he accuses them of following them because they wanted a dinner and a show. Basically, more food and then a cool way to get it. I want to do that. What did he want them to do? What was Jesus's agenda when he made, when he fed the 5,000? I mean, yes, there is an element of mercy and compassion people need to eat. He didn't want them to faint along the way. But I don't think that was the driving force. He wasn't too worried about that. He wanted them to ask more questions. They should be obvious, but they're not obvious to even smart people. Like, okay, this guy can do this. Who is he? Why is he here? What can I receive? I think we do this in our own fashion. When we minimize Jesus down to somebody who's just supposed to grease the wheels of our own agenda. You know, we come to him with a laundry list of what we want him to do. And that's all we really need him to do. That's all we really ask. Instead of saying, Lord, here I am. What what do you want me to do? What can I be included in? What would we accomplish? Questions like that sometimes don't, don't make the cut. So Jesus demonstrates in the feeding of the 5,000 that, that he is God, that he transcends laws of physics. To this day, no pun intended, this is a hard thing for people to swallow. Okay? There are people, smart people, church people, who would say, this is a story about Jesus inspiring people to share. This is a story about how we're supposed to be generous. Come on. When I hear that, I I just about want to lose my breakfast all over the place. This is not about sharing. They had nothing to share. This is not about generosity, not at all. This is about Jesus being the Son of God. What can I get from the Son of God? A lot more important things than lunch, let me tell you. 
Jesus wants to overcome our doubt about all aspects of following God, about all aspects of what he promises, especially about the promises of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we need to ask ourselves, do I believe, do I believe that God can do such things? Now, as I mentioned before, today is, in this service, is a communion service. And up there on the altar are a, a few trays of wine and grape juice and a very small amount of rather flavorless bread. Okay? And there's more than enough for the people here. But we are saying to you, it is the vehicle for Jesus to bring his body and blood to you. Do you have a problem with that? Some people do. Historically, in the Reformation, it was argued by the Reformed that this cannot be literally the place where the body and blood is given. Why? Because body and blood are part of Jesus' human nature, not part of his divine nature. Therefore, the human nature is constrained by the laws of physics. I didn't say it exactly that way, but that's what they meant. And, And the Lutheran Church argued back that there must be some sort of transferring of properties from the divine nature to, to the human nature. I don't even know why we bothered. Why didn't they just say, oh, and the loaves and the fishes were part of his divine nature then? Because Jesus had no problem multiplying loaves and fishes. Would there be a problem in giving his body and blood over and over in this church and that church and that church and that church over the whole world Tons of it when Jesus himself maybe weighed 160 if he was lucky. It's not a problem for God. Don't think that you know the limitations of God. Just hear what he says. And if Holy Spirit allows you, believe it. Now, how do you apply that to other aspects of our life? And in particular, I can see it with prayer. Prayer comes with certain criteria that God gives in order to answer it. One, you have to be obedient. You can't be in open disobedience. Now, he's not asking you to be perfect. Otherwise, there'd be nobody, right? But he is asking you to live repentantly. So obedience can be the first tripping point for an answer to prayer. If you're not listening to him, he says, I'm not listening to you either. Makes sense. The next one, though, is faith. And it isn't a faith. It's a faith in a lot of different aspects, actually, but not maybe as far as some people take it. When you go to God, you need to have faith that he's good, that he isn't some genie who is going to trap you in your words and give you something that you asked for but definitely did not want. He's not like that. He is, he is filtering it for a, a good answer, a positive answer for you. 
then, and here's a biggie, you have to have faith that he can actually do these things. And do we? Do we? Here's our prayer list. I'm going to use it or a copy of it in just a few minutes. Let's see if we can think we can do this. So we got a large list of people who are sick. We got a, a child with cancer in her skull. We got a bunch of people fighting cancer in general. We have people who are recovering from a fall, from heart surgery complications, from mental illness, from Crohn's disease. Do, do you believe that God can actually do anything positive with any of these things. Now, God will work miraculously at times. He will also choose to work through means, which would be like doctors and medicine. We don't deny that God can work through means. But we are asking God to get involved in these people's lives and in their health situation, do you believe that God can do that? Or do you just say the prayers because that's what we do? Then, there's students going back to school. Do you believe that God can help that situation? They've got to ask the old teachers. They're like, I don't know. we got a group going to Kairos. Do you believe that God can work through them? You okay with that? we got a Never Alone ministry. Do you believe that God can work through them? We have persistently asked that God would end the war in Ukraine. Do you think he can do that? When will he do that? Some of these things involve not just miracles, but influencing people. God doesn't want to just blank out people's minds, typically. He, he's influencing them to act. That's why a lot of times it moves very slowly. But do you believe that? In the next line, here's a toughie. We ask for wisdom for our country's leaders and all those in authority. Now that's kind of pushing the envelope for faith for me. But uh, do you believe that God can actually work through those leaders and move them toward a direction that's more to his liking? That is what we're asking. I think it would be easier to ask for just, you know, 5,000 box lunches. But, uh, you know, think about these things. Don't pray without faith. And when you realize that God can and will in his way, then maybe... Maybe you should pray bigger. Now, another way, and sort of on the other side of this event, is we don't want to turn this into a reason to not be good stewards of, of what we are doing. As a disciple, you know, there's things that God wants you to do. That's your stewardship. And there's things that only God can do, and you need to trust him for that. And where the line is between the two can be kind of great, I will admit. It's hard to know where I have to let go and let God and where I should be responsible. So, for instance, you got to feed your family tonight. And you decide, let's just see if this 5,000 thing still works. 
and you neglect your stewardship and throw one piece of bread and say to the family, go get it. It'll multiply, I'm sure. You know, that is abusing the story. Okay, Jesus does not do this to get rid of hunger, believe it or not. Nor does he say, here's a nice trick you can do weekly. He shows his transcendence, but he does give us our responsibility. And we can have confidence that in the things that we have no power to change, Jesus can and will work. And it will work out fine. We can have confidence in his promises and his prophecies. And as the people of God who belong to him, we will be fine. We'll be more than fine. Because Jesus has already died for us. And we are his. And this life, with all its troubles, short and relatively easy, leads to glory, and God is good on his promises. So keep that in mind. When you start to get panicky, pray, pray big, and remember who you're talking to. Remember, in Jesus' name, amen.